I hope you've had a good Sabbath so far, Sabbath morning. Uh, the topics I want to talk about today, uh, there's going to be a little bit of stereotyping to a certain extent. It's not uh, purposeful in a negative way, but at the same time it is necessary in that we need to be able to sp- speak about broad categories. The Bible speaks about broad categories, uh, and sometimes we have to do that. Uh, for instance, uh, Mr. Robinson and I do uh, the Living Youth Podcast, and we do that Generally, the target audience is the uh, uh, teens and young adults. Now, you might feel 47 and think, well, I'm a young adult, aren't I? And let me be up front. We're not talking to you. No, you're not a young adult. We don't, we don't think of you at all. You don't even enter our minds. We're not, we don't care about you. And no, that's not true. We do care about you. Uh, and a lot of parents are listening to the podcast there as well. But, but we have to think in terms of a, you know, a younger audience for that podcast. Uh, Mr. Rod McNair and Mr. Jonathan McNair doing a, the Brother to Brother podcast. I know Mr. Uh, DeSimone's mentioned it as well. And that's, that's kind of for, as I understand it, when I listen to it, it's for anyone who wants to learn leadership skills and, and, and serve in the church in some way. And, you know, that can apply to younger people, can apply to older people. And then for the older people, uh, they just ask, what's a podcast? You know, I don't, I, what are you talking about? What is all this? I've, I've snapped pea pods, you know, is that, I'm just kidding. Some of you know exactly what a podcast is. So, but there will be a little bit of, uh, presumption and generalization and none of it is meant to offend, but it is meant to help communicate things clearly concerning things involving the young and the old. And some of us find ourselves in different categories from time to time. We're blessed in this congregation to have a wide mix uh, we have some attendees who are attending because they're carried in a basket by their parents. And we still count them as an attendee because they're here, they're attending. Uh, we have some that might want to be carried in uh, because their knees hurt and their feet hurt. Uh, but they do their best to walk in as best they can. Uh, so we have some octogenarians and we have whatever the word is for eight monthians. I don't know what that is, but we have a wide range of membership. And what a blessing that is. It's a blessing to have a mix. The world tends to want to categorize us in, in our age bands such that we're so, the young are socialized by other people their age in school. And that's a formula for not being socialized well at all. At the same time, when it comes to the elderly, we tend to push them off someplace in society where we don't interact with them as much, uh, which is a, po- a recipe, as I think we'll see today, for setting yourself up for not being able to learn the things a culture needs to continually remind itself of. So today I do want to talk about things concerning uh, the old and the young. And part of why this came up is because every once in a while, I'll hear something in response to something that is said that is a response that goes something like this. It's not always these exact words, though perhaps sometimes it is. It's that, well, you know, they're just saying that because they're old. Now, that can happen in personal conversations after you've talked to an older person. It can happen when you hear something from behind the lectern. Uh, because the ministry tends to be, as we'll talk about in a moment, though, not always of an older variety. And uh, for instance, let me just refer to two fairly recent sermons and talk about some themes that have been mentioned from the lectern uh, that can be too easy to dismiss by saying, well, they're saying that because they're old. Uh, I think of, for instance, Mr. Weston's sermon of June 18th, 2022, titled, Why Marriage? 
that one is online, DVE 1313. You can look that one up. Uh, Mr. Jonathan McNair's more recent sermon, December 31st, 2022, Why Gender Matters to God. Uh, that one is not online yet, but will be. And actually, I can list just some specific themes that show up in those sermons and other sermons. Let me just go through them real quickly. The fact that sex or gender differences matter, that roles in life differ for the sexes, that the biblical design and structure of the family matters, and biblical roles in that family matter, that it's generally a good thing when a wife and mother can be home with her children during the day instead of working outside the home, that it's a good thing for a husband and father to be the head of the family and provide for that family. That modest dress matters. And that our modern ideas of modesty are very messed up. And our society is fairly clueless about them. And that that culture can rub off on us. That sexuality matters. That homosexuality is a sin. But more so that homosexuality and other popular sexual perversions aren't otherwise harmless. Well, yes, it's a sin, but I know a lot and they're not so bad. I'm not saying they're bad, but we've heard from the lectern, we hear in other places, that it's actually something rotting away at the very foundation of civilization. In no way does homosexuality fit under the category of, you know, not quite so bad as advertised. Uh, We hear that the modern, many, popular cultural movements and trends going on right now, such as those that claim to be about equality, equity, justice, and fairness, are in reality vehicles in the end for very ungodly things that given time would make civilization worse and would achieve the very opposite of what God is trying to achieve in people. And it's easy to react quickly and think, but some of those things they say are very good. Well, Well, we'll get to that. But I have heard in response to some of these things, well, I know it sounds pretty rough what he said, but you know what? He's old. He's older. He comes from a different generation. We know better. Now, most people don't put it in those words. You know, if so, then your challenges are obvious. But that can be a natural response. And I'm saying that Partially as a confession in some way, because believe it or not, I used to also be younger and I used to also respond in similar ways. It's almost a characteristic of youth to look at your elders and to think, you know, better. Uh, I'm going to mess up the quote, but I I think I've used it before. Mark Twain uh, once said that when he was 14, his father was an idiot, but then he turned 21 and was amazed at how much his father had learned in seven years. We all can do that. It's very easy. This isn't a matter of pointing a finger at just one group of people. This is a human tendency throughout history is to think, well, you know, they're saying that, but that's because they're old. That's because they don't know. I'd like to address the sentiment behind that statement today because God seeks to avoid passionately in the minds of his people the sentiment that comes with that statement. It's just because they're old. And yet the devil is working just about as passionately to weave that sentiment into our civilization and societal thinking at almost every level possible. 
So I'd like to take a look at that sentiment today, because as we do, we'll find that God's way actually puts obligations on the young, but also obligations on the old, if we're going to do things right. The title of my sermon today is, It's Not Just Because We're Old, dot, dot, dot. I like, I like the occasional dot, dot, dot. It adds a sense of drama. What's happening? And it also makes Mr. Robinson really happy. The man, he loves ellipses. It's not just because we're old, dot, dot, dot. And before I do jump into this, before I focus on age primarily, I feel an obligation, and, and my wife and I have talked about that. I actually appreciate her, her real counsel in this regard. I feel the need to talk first about ordination and ministry before I even bother to touch on age. Let me highlight, we do not believe in the church of God, and Mr. Herbert Armstrong was adamant about this, in the Catholic doctrine of ex-cathedra speaking, quote-unquote. You know, there's this dogma in the Catholic Church that when the Pope is speaking ex-cathedra, meaning from the chair, the official chair of the Catholic Church, if you will, then what he says is perfect and lasting and, and is, is completely error-free. In fact, I don't know, you know, when you're actually in the, in the work of it and interacting with individuals of different faiths, you recognize that sometimes for good cause, you know, we will highlight the history of the popes and highlight that some of them have been terrible. I mean, they've been terrible, adulterous, murderous warmongers, for instance. And, and some people that kind of shakes them out of a certain inappropriate reverence of the Catholic Pope as a position, recognizing that God does allow it to be populated by terrible people. But for other Catholics who actually understand the doctrine of ex-cathedra a little more, they recognize, no, no, no. Now, they're false, just so you know. But they'll say, no, no, that's a proof of Catholic doctrine. Because even these terrible, nasty, awful popes who in so many ways in their life were awful human beings, when they spoke officially ex-cathedra, their statements were perfect and they haven't been changed for hundreds of years or really for a thousand years, say, since it's definitely that apostate church is a long-running institution. You know, Mr. Armstrong taught against that. He recognized there is no promise of infallibility in that sense. And he said that because there's times he would see something here and there that he needs to change. We don't teach that doctrine of speaking ex-cathedra. Uh, the ministry is human, and we certainly are capable of making mistakes. But at the same time, then, we do believe that God uses the ministry to teach his truths. And we believe that because the Bible says that's the case. We believe that the ministry is a necessary institution in the church and in the lives of the membership because God says that is the case. It's not a fashionable thing in some circles to actually believe. Uh, Some who have left our fellowship or those who linger in related fellowships here and there uh, sort of poisoning the water with very ideas they have. Uh, But it is what the Bible says. If we look in Ephesians chapter 4... For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, now I say Ephesians 4 and some of you are thinking, oh, I know where he's going. And like I like to say, well, then good, you're responsible for that, right? If you know where I'm going, then all the more that means it's inside of you and that means you're accountable for these things that you know. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. 
we read here how God structures the church. It says in verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, which means service, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me pause here and ask how many have reached that? Do us all a favor and raise your hand if you have reached the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's a terrible trap to do. Don't do that. No, if you raised your hand, you're not going to raise your hand. You know better, right? You know better. We say this, I know better. I'm certainly not there, and I can provide a lot of witnesses that would would affirm that. Continuing, verse 14, that we should, again, he put this ministry in place. Why? Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching these ideas that are taught here and there by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth, this is a classic Pauline sentence that goes on forever. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom... The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. If we want to grow as members of the body of Christ, if we want a healthy functioning church, which also communicates to and assists with a healthy functioning family and our own individual healthy functioning lives, then God says, you know, I want that too, and therefore I gave you a ministry, a structured ministry with offices and positions of ordained individuals. For us to say, well, you know, I don't really need that. It's just God, me, and my Bible. We can say that, and it sounds very Christian. It is exactly the opposite of what God says is true. Uh, we see in Hebrews chapter 13, a related statement. Hebrews 13. Now, some of you also might be thinking, oh, I know where he's going here, too. But you don't want to admit that now. You know, maybe it's like, well, I don't know. I don't want to. Well, no, some of you are admitted and, and you're glad for it because you, you know these things. You know these things are true. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. We read here, Hebrews 13, verse 17, Paul admonishes us, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Even some of the most liberal translations I have looked for uh, say similar words. Because many people attack verses like this and try to water them down in a hundred different ways because they're trying to justify that they don't want to have individuals over them in any way. Here's the, the, uh, the NIV, not known as your strictest of translations. Uh, the NIV translates this verse, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Notice, this is Paul talking, but he's not talking about himself even. He's talking about other leaders under him. He says, obey them, submit to them. 
they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. I, I can speak to some other ministers that I know I've talked to on this account and how terrifying a thought it is to know that you are not perfect and yet to know that God will hold you terrifyingly account for the things you teach and for the things you advise and for the things you counsel. And those I've talked to about that talk about how therefore they take it incredibly seriously. They don't just come up behind the lectern without having prayed about that message, without having to passionately ask God, please make sure what I say are your words. And if I do make mistakes, please don't let them be a hindrance. Please work with the people who are listening. That's why so many of us often pray for the listening, that God will help us to interact with the things that we hear. Again, it's not a popular sentiment outside of the living church of God in some places. Uh, there are various individuals here and there, young men, uh, that, you know, work very hard to explain away these kinds of verses. When really, if they would put just as much effort into actually seeking to follow those verses, they might discover a far richer relationship with Jesus Christ and find their way back to a healthy body of the church. Let me ask you, if God wants to challenge some of your deeply held beliefs, if God wants you to reconsider something, and this is for old and young, I'm not differentiating yet at this point. Uh, if God wants you to really rethink something you are passionately internally committed to that might make so much sense to you that to even question it seems insane. Wouldn't he use the ministry to do that? Passages like these tell me that he would. I know in my personal case, he often has. Reacting to something where it doesn't seem quite right at first isn't necessarily a sign it should be dismissed because they're old or, or not as smart as you. And part of why I want to address the ministry here at the beginning is because that's a special reason to listen to what's said up here. Because uh, some of you, frankly, are, I know that some of us are really incredibly old. I mean, dramatically old, right? Uh, like Jonathan McNair. Just so. It's hard to fathom there are people walking the earth older than Jonathan McNair. At the same, so some of you might even be older than him and be thinking, you know, well, I don't know, he's, He's kind of old. I don't know. He doesn't, he's not, I'm kind of with it like the youngins are, which we prove by saying things like with it, by the way. Uh, oh, you know, I'm really with it like the younger people. Well, then all the more this needs to be there because you know what? We do have ministers that many of us are older than. I, I think, for instance, uh, we've sent Mr. Ryan Dawson out into the world, right? He's a, a very young minister in that sense compared to a lot of us. Uh, we have Mr. Michael Brown. Up in, uh, in Canada, right? We have Mr. Julian Braddock right here amongst us that we're about to just fire off out of a cannon, you know, out into the world somewhere, uh, and pastoring and ministering to people older than him. It's important to recognize that it's not just a matter of age. Ordination means something. And in those cases as well, I, I want I need to get this across before I go to the others. First Timothy chapter four. Timothy was a young minister. And Paul wanted him to know that didn't change the fact that he was a minister. First Timothy chapter four. And verse 12. Paul tells Timothy directly encouraging him. 
First Timothy four and verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He wants to make sure he knows, don't let someone just say, oh, look, I know you're a minister, but you were so young. Uh, I'm so sorry, but uh, I don't feel like I have any cause to do what you say. And what is the context of this? Just look one verse forward, verse 11. He tells him these things command and teach. Timothy may have been young, but he has a responsibility as a minister to command and teach things. In fact, that's not the only time he tells Timothy to command people in his congregation. He says that at least three times in his communication with Timothy. It is very real authority. And it does make a difference. Now, part of why it can make a difference, and this will start blending to our theme, we see in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in chapter 3. Timothy, as a person in that kind of authority, had a responsibility himself. And Paul encourages him in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. 2 Timothy pi, for those who would enjoy that, which is probably two people. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice there were multiple elements to that. Absolutely, his knowledge of the scriptures was an important one in verse 15. But also helping him hearken back to those from whom he learned. Which most likely, in all cases, at least was Paul but also was a callback to his mother, was also a callback to his grandmother, as you see in other verses. So these things said, understanding that when it comes to a minister saying something, we do have an obligation to take it seriously. It's not an attitude the world encourages. It's certainly not a United States of America kind of attitude in which we don't think anybody has the right to say anything authoritative to us. But it is a characteristic of the church of God. However, let's start making an age distinction here because sometimes it's not a minister. You know, sometimes your mom is telling you as a young child how she really wants your room to be cleaned. And is God just going uh, to be okay with you if you say, well, mom's not a minister, so, you know, <laughs> I don't have to do that. Or if your father, you know, you're, you've just gotten a car and your father's trying to give you advice about how to use it responsibly, you know, and how to do that in conjunction with your cell phone. Are you going to say, well, okay, you know, dad is not a minister, right? You know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and it's a, what Bible verse are you going to show me, Dad, that says thou shalt not use thy phone in this way, you know, whatever. Uh, he's older than you. And admittedly, when he was first driving a car, he didn't have a cell phone, right? Uh, but at the same time, are we still willing to listen? And it goes to larger things. What about advice concerning rearing our kids? Now, let me say, parents aren't always right. Uh, sometimes... They're wrong. I mean, my wife and I are always right. I, I don't want to make sure you don't lump us in with the rest of you. We have made no mistakes with our children, which you can tell by the perfection that beams from them as they 
Uh, anyone who, they're not perfect. And we are not perfect. We have made mistakes. You know, I prayed that I would avoid some of my parents' mistakes. Uh, and then all I did was discover new ones to make. It seems that's just kind of, it's kind of the way, right? Again, even parents don't speak ex cathedra, so to speak. We do make our mistakes. But none of those things change what the Bible commands and what God expects. It's sort of like God's command to husbands and wives. If you're, we're not going to take away from our time to read those passages in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. But it's been said many times before when the Bible tells a man, when God tells a man to love his wife, there's no asterisk there where you look at the bottom and the footnote says, if she's being lovable that day. It just says lover, lovable or not. Just like it tells the man, commands the man. Sorry, I just did that. Commands the man to love his wife. Commands the wife to respect her husband. There's no asterisk there with a footnote at the bottom that says, unless he's been particularly hard to respect because of his dumb decisions. It doesn't say those things. These are things that we owe God. As husband, I owe God my obedience to him by loving my wife. As a wife, a wife owes God her obedience in respecting her husband. It's like that. And when it comes to our ages, young or old, it's also like that. And the things that God tells of us and the things that are expected of us. And I recognize, by the way, I don't want to have you, you know, raise your hand if you're young. Raise your hand if you're old. Uh, that would be awkward for all of us, right? And sometimes it varies. Like I've served at a lot of camps. I've served at teen camps. I've served at preteen camps. And for a lot of the campers, generally all of them, I've been older than them right? The campers are in the young position. I'm in the old position. And yet I work in an office with people in their seventies and eighties everywhere around me. In those cases, I'm 30 years younger than some of these men, younger even than that, than some of these men. I'm definitely in the younger position and many of them are in the older position. And when I look at the difference in those ages, I see a span between the younger ones in some situations where I'm older and the older in situations where I'm younger. And that's a span that's broader than I've even been alive. You're looking at 60, 65 years. You're looking at a great span. So things will vary for you in different circumstances. But a lot of us have a good sense of whether we're often, more often than not, in the older category versus the younger category. But please listen to all of it because it will apply to each of us in our various roles. So first, a word to the young. The default of Scripture is that the young should show respect and deference to the old. And God would have us done that, do that. And there is just, it's, it's actually, I, I was at great pains in making this sermon because some things are shouted so frequently in the Bible that I was just flooded with verses to refer to. I'm picking some that I think are particularly helpful, but perhaps if you do your own study, you will find others. Let's just start off looking at Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20 and verse 29. It says here in Proverbs 20 and verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. 
And those of us who have fewer and fewer hairs as the years go by, wish we had more hairs of any color, you know, whatsoever, just showing up, perhaps. But if we are losing a hair, we'd like you to imagine that the hairs that are gone are gray. Because it says here that that's part of the splendor of an old man. You know, it really is not, uh, I would say, a coincidence that we live in a culture where some men are very encouraged to dye their hair and to try to prevent it from looking gray. Because we're in a culture that no longer recognizes that that is a sign that someone is due some level of respect and deference. We're in a society that worships young culture. And there's a pressure then to appear young. But the Bible says the glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray head. In fact, I would highlight if you are getting to be an older man... Again, I'll let you define that for yourself. And you continue to simply focus on your strength and not your wisdom. After a while, men like that become kind of a parody of what we would really want them to be. As someone is getting into his 50s and then his 60s and his 70s, and he's still focusing on strength and not making the transition that he should be a source of wisdom for others. Not just, you know, how many pull-ups he can do anymore, but that he's actually a source that you want to listen to because of the, the richness and the righteous experience in his life. Then he ends up becoming a parody of what men are supposed to be as an authority. Now, we'll come back to this because there definitely are some caveats, but let's just ask ourselves what should be the obvious question. Why would you honor someone for gray hair? If it's just the fact they have gray hair, well, let's just dye all our hair gray. You know, instant ticket to success and to being honored by others. Because gray hair tends to indicate amount of experience. Some of you went gray really fast. We'll presume you got experience really fast. But in general, it happens at a certain time. And it indicates a life that's been lived, not perfectly, but even the idea that you've made mistakes is profitable for others. Because it means an opportunity for the young to learn what happens when you make that mistake. So they don't have to make it themselves. God intended, among just the facts of our deterioration, he wanted certain things to communicate to others. This individual, his words, her words should be given weight, even above your own. This individual's perspective and opinions and conclusions should be given weight even when they seem so different and so obviously wrong compared to yours. God intends the old to be given deference and respect. Let's turn to Proverbs 23. This is certainly a special case. But it doesn't mean the principle doesn't apply broadly. Proverbs 23 and verse 22. We're told here, listen to your father who begot you. Verse 22. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Now, it's easy to see the word despise and just think of treating terribly, you know. Uh, I don't know, neglecting and, and you know, not, not caring for her needs in any way. But 
It really is a parallel of the first verse. Listen to your father. You know, to despise your parents is also not to give them deference and listen to what they have to say. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. And he said, well, yeah, that's when we're young. You know, when we're young, of course we have to. We, we should. But it does say when she is old. Don't think of her as someone who no longer has anything to give just because she's older. Now, this is not saying that your parents are continuing to be a decision-making authority in your life. Genesis makes that very plain. A father leaves, sorry, a man leaves father and mother. Uh, I think we've talked about that before in, in other sermons, but that's a pretty strong word. You create your own family. A man is the head of his own family. He doesn't have to obey his father and mother as if they have 100% authority in terms of decisions made in their family. But that said, these verses aren't saying that. Notice it says, listen to your father. Don't dismiss him outright. Don't say, dad, you just say these things because you're old. Give them weight. Consider them. Lean in their direction. You know, one of the simplest things that starts to blow your mind, talking about early days, early days, you just think of an average as, uh, if you average numbers, you're just adding them together. But you learn in different paths that there's some averages you do differently because you don't want to treat every data point the same. You want to weight other data points more than different data points called weighted averages. So what happens when your uh, teachers are grading your, uh, giving you a grade for your, for your uh, class and they're giving the tests more weight than the homework? It's not saying your parents are automatically right, but it's saying there's something extra that should be considered when you listen to them. It makes a difference having lived 20, 25, 30 years longer than you have. And this is not just true of your parents, it's true of individuals more broadly. You know, both of these were from Proverbs. And there's a reason you see a lot of statements like this in the Proverbs. The Proverbs are part of what we call wisdom literature. Because if you actually want to be wise, these are the things that you will do. If you want to avoid the missteps of life and the pitfalls of life and the pain that comes with making mistakes in life, then these are the things you seek to listen to. These are the things you seek to apply in your life. And it says that these are the people you would want to understand and you'd want to go to for advice so you can consider it with the other data that you have. But this advice is not only limited to the wisdom literature. We won't turn there. Well, let's go ahead and turn to Leviticus. We will turn there. Turn to Leviticus 19. But as you do, I want to highlight that if you understand the old covenant, we understand that one of the commandments is honor your father and mother. But Mr. Wakefield and others have encouraged us to go through the statutes and how they actually handled different matters of obedience and disobedience and what they did when certain laws were broken. And, you know, if you had an impudent child who refused to respect his parents in the old covenant, that child was executed. And I've taught high school. Most of those kids would not have made it out. They would not. It'd be a much smaller graduation ceremony. We'd notice each class. Well, boy, each class gets smaller, you know, year after year after year. Even the school I went into, you know, there would have definitely. And that was, let's just say, many, many years before. 
Uh, and our society doesn't do that. And of course, we don't do that. The new covenant's thankfully not about killing people. It's about saving people. It's about helping people to do better and encourage them to repent and grow and change and have Jesus Christ live in them. It's not the administration of death. It's the administration of the spirit. But the fact is that still illustrates to us how vitally important God recognizes that to be. To have a child who refuses to respect his parents when you actually look at those decisions where God actually says, execute that person, it should mean something. Those are often things that if you allow them to progress, they would eventually result in the dissolution of civilization. And there are also things that tend to spread pretty fast. So one example, let's look here in Leviticus 19 for a much more pleasant example and one that we can implement this immediately not the stoning thing don't implement that don't do that i don't want people going away saying well okay mr smith said stone people no we didn't i did not say that but this we can do and is worthwhile and i remember having it impressed on me and i i've tried harder ever since to do it leviticus 19 and verse 32 this is part of god's law in terms of how he thinks life should be lived and wants us to consider. Leviticus 19, verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the eternal. Notice he doesn't just say to rise before their presence. He roots that in fearing God. As in he sees the disconnect. He says, look, I understand in your prayers, you say that you fear me, uh, you're seeking to obey, you, you say you want to be a good Christian under my son, Jesus Christ, you say you fear me, but I see the disrespect you've shown that person just because they're older. And God says, you know, I don't think you fear me. I think there's an area in which we need to do some work. He grounds respecting the elderly and those who are older than us in fearing him. One of the most vital concepts, one of the most vital attitudes we have to pursue as Christians if we want to be in the kingdom of God. So I've tried to do that. You know, when an older person comes into my office, I try to, to stand up. I'm not perfect at it, and the only reason I'm doing it is because once it was highlighted to me, you know, you could have done this. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right, I could have. Uh, and, and so I try. Uh, it's not a bad thing to do. It doesn't automatically change your attitude, but I have to admit, sometimes changing your attitude isn't doing one big dramatic thing. It's like, oh, I, j I just didn't respect older people until once someone, uh, an older man pulled me out of a burning building and I told God I would always respect older people. After that, thank you for saving me through the hand of an old man. It's often not those things. It's the little things we do that begin to train our conscience and our spirit to behave differently. You know, it starts with just rising in the presence of an older individual when they come into the room. But it's that one little thing. It's the nudges often that move us onto the course we need to be versus the dramatic yanking of the wheel. This one might not seem to be related, but I believe it is. Let's turn to Proverbs 22. And as we go there, let me highlight... There's a lot of things that the Bible says that God often has larger things in mind. 
Uh, for instance, this is a, it's a biblical principle. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking to those who weren't willing to support their minister, in this case financially, which was him, who knows what they were doing with their ties. They were sending them someplace else. They're using them to support someone else. And he was doing his best to work with them without offending, trying to keep their shields down while he still corrected them. And he talked to them about the Bible's command concerning not muzzling the ox. You got an ox going around and he's grinding grain through the things they would use to do that. And he said, don't muzzle the ox. If he's grinding the grain, he gets to munch on the grain, you know, God says. But Paul says, do you think that's what he had in mind was just oxen? Is this why this principle was so important to God? You know, Paul's the one who highlights that. And I think that applies to things like this too. At least, I, let me say this, I've tried to apply it and I haven't always succeeded, but where I have, I found generally I've, I've been blessed. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28, there's a command here. Well, sorry, in Proverbs, it's, it's actually rooted in a command, but I want to read the Proverbs statement of it. It says, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Now, that's actually a command in the Old Testament. Landmarks were these big stones they would use to set on a piece of property so you knew where one field ended and the other stopped. You know, versus, say, miles of barbed wire fence like you might have in Texas or something. They had these big stones. And these stones would tell you where something ended and another thing started. You know, Bob's field versus Jim's field. And the thing is, you bet you could just go out there and lift that stone and move it someplace. And someone say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You moved the stone. Well, I don't know. Did I move the stone? Maybe. I didn't see anybody. Nobody you got cameras. You don't have cameras. It's like the third century. You don't, you don't have any cameras. Um, and say, well, there's a big spot in the dirt where the stone used to be well maybe they waited when the person was going to be there for a few months and grass would grow up the thing is it was deceptive and god said yeah don't do that but there's more than that it's interesting what he says here he says don't remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set that is there's times when maybe all of you wonder why is this landmark even here i mean is this even the wisest place for the landmark Now, it doesn't mean that maybe sometimes that landmark is in the wrong spot. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's an ancient mistake and both owners of the field just clasp hands and say, Oh, I tell you, Timothy, it is so nice to finally move the landmark. Let's do the moving of the landmark ceremony. Moving the landmark. And it's done and everybody's happy and justice has been done or whatever the case might be. But there's a principle here. If something has been in place for a long, long time, time it's only the fool who won't read the proverbs who thinks it's a good idea to move that hastily and not to consider carefully why did all who went before us think this should be here maybe it's here for good cause we can make excuses we can make up reasons it might be here But we had better do some due diligence because if something has been there for centuries, we need to think carefully before we move something haphazardly. Don't be so hasty to move the ancient landmark. It's there for cause. It's there for purpose. Uh, An art teacher in the church told me once how frustrating it was working with young kids because they're taught by our society to want to come in and to figure out their own ways to do art. And he says, no one is learning the actual techniques that people have spent centuries mastering. It's like everything we've learned about art, 
the people that are aspiring artists don't want to bother to learn. If you look at the history of art, it's part of why we have such garbage that we call art these days. Don't be so hasty to move the ancient landmark. In a broader sense, we are doing this with our entire culture. When it comes to sexual mores, when it comes to family structure, when it comes to what actual respect and tolerance of other people means, we are moving all the ancient landmarks right and left. Let's turn to Job chapter 20. Sorry, sorry, Job 12, Job 12. I have no idea where the number 20 came from other than sneaking up from behind number 19. Job 12. And though Job speaking, Job actually gave good answers to his uh, interlocutors in many places, and this was certainly this was certainly one. In Job 12 and verse 11, he asks, "Does not the ear test words, and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men, and with length of days understanding." You know, those two verses go together there. Doesn't the ear test the words that it hears? You know, when your mouth tastes something terrible, you have cause to be suspicious. Not all the time. Sometimes it's broccoli and you should eat it, right? But sometimes it's dog food and you've made a terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, we test the words we hear with the ears. We taste the food we take in with our mouths. How many of you have taken a big glass of milk and realized, oh, oh, I was spoiled, what in the world, right? It happens. If you're a single guy, sometimes it happens a lot. Experience matters. And there are those who are aged who have heard a lot of words and they have tasted a lot of food, some of us more than others. And then he adds in verse 12, because of that wisdom, where do you find it? You find it with aged men. Where do you find understanding? With length of days. Our civilization, our society right now thinks exactly the opposite. That those things that are with the aged need to die. That those things that are the product of, of length of days and many years, we just wish they would find their way to their graves so we can step over them and build the new world the way we know it's supposed to be. But that's not the way God thinks. And we'll come back to Job later. Now, the next section, what I want to get to before I transition to the old, because for us old folks, our time is coming in this sermon. Before I do that, I wanted to highlight this one element. And I wrote in my notes, uh, danger zone, uh, because this is where I could spend the rest of my time if I wanted to. But I've decided maybe one day I'll make a sermon on this whole topic. Part of the challenge for the young, not just in the church, but outside of the church these days, is the entire culture uh, is in a certain frame of mind. And the Bible makes plain that as the end comes, society and our culture and our civilization will deteriorate. It will get worse. It will grow less and less competent, certainly less and less anchored in the things of God. And there's a very interesting prophecy that I'd like to highlight in that regard. It's in Jeremiah chapter 16.
this has actually helped me to put some things uh, in place in my in my brain concerning what I see and 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 dealing with uh, you know our forefathers, for instance, and those who have gone before us, even as Americans, and and it helps. In Jeremiah chapter sixteen and verse ten. Now, we're going to start here and understand God is mainly here talking to a latter generation, but he will say something about the previous. And I think what he says, at least for me, was fascinating. So in Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 10, we begin here, it says, And it shall be when you show this people all these words, these words of the prophecy, and they say to you, Why has the eternal pronounced all this great disaster against us? And I, I kind of see strains of that even today. People who will mock uh, in the culture those who say we're headed for terrible times, uh, that, that things are terrible. I say, why? Because we're too loving? Is that the problem? Uh, is it because we're too caring of other people? Is that the problem? You know what? You're, you're just a bigot. Uh, you just don't understand, and we look forward to your generation being gone. Uh, they don't understand why. All these things are going to happen. He continues, sorry. He says, why, they say, why has the eternal pronounced all this great disaster against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the eternal, our God? Verse 11. Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the eternal, they have walked after other gods and served them. And worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. Now, pause here. It's easy to be tempted to say, well, I'm, I'm going to punish you because of what your fathers did. No, there is a connection, but he's explaining what the fathers did for an important reason. He's highlighting your fathers, the previous generations. Yes, they actually forsook me. They walked after other gods, served them, worshiped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. Verse 12. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. The result, he says in verse 13, I will cast you out of this land into a land you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. Notice the contrast. And I tend to think, you know, it's easy for us as Americans, uh, especially depending upon the news we watch and stuff we like to digest, to, to focus on the founding fathers of the country and to, to praise them, but sometimes too much. And let me say this as someone who's a fan of our national founding fathers. I'm a fan of George Washington. There are elements of his life that I just think are, are sterling that I wish I saw in more leaders today that, frankly, I don't see in any leaders today. Think of your favorite leader politically. No, I don't see it in him. I don't even know who it is, you know, but I'm saying I don't see this in anybody. Uh, James Madison to a certain boy. And I'm not going to go through all the list. Anyway, a lot of our founding fathers, there's so much I admire about them. They were brilliant men that put something together that really in many ways is astonishing. But it's also true that many of them worshipped a Trinitarian God. It's also true that some of them were, were deists. It's also true that they believed in a Jesus who is a different Jesus. Who actually was not a fan of his father's laws. And did away with those supposedly on the cross. So they could be free to do something else. 
They're also men that while doing their best to establish the most liberal and free society perhaps the world had ever seen also created the very conditions we see today where all of that liberality is being used for license. There is a direct line between the founding of this country and where we are today. And people who pretend we just got to get back to the Constitution don't actually recognize we are enjoying the fruits of the founding of this country today as we see it fall apart. And actually, the founding fathers even said that. They noticed that, well, yeah, this is only really going to work if we're a good, strong, moral, religious people. And yet they put nothing in place to make sure the people stayed that way because that was part of the freedom uh, that they were wanting to grant. Uh, there were certain philosophers, French philosophers and others that were part of their thinking, and, and we're enjoying that today. They weren't perfect, and we make a mistake if we start to idolize them. But they were pretty amazing on a lot of levels. And I see them in what Jeremiah is talking about when he says, you know, your fathers, they walked after other gods. They didn't actually obey my law. They didn't build a country based on my law. But he says, you've done worse than your father's. At least they worshipped some God. At least they recognized, even if it was a wrong God, that there's something beyond them that is more important than them. That there's the possibility, at least, that something, an authority, transcends their lives and that they have obligations to it. It might be pointed in the wrong direction, but at least there's a mindset that can be worked with. He says, you, what does he say about them again? He says in verse 12, you've done worse than your fathers. Behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart. We live in a world today where we are the gods we long to obey. We decide what is right and wrong. Individually. And it reminds me of where we are today. And that is the culture we have today. Where does it all lead? The Bible is very plain about that. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Oops, sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I tend to read this at, I think, every TWP I've ever done. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul warns us, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. I don't think it's any coincidence that a major winner of the last Grammys that we talked about on the youth podcast earlier was a song called Unholy. Literally, we would be living in an unholy culture at the end of days. Verse 3, unloving. How funny that we're in a culture that worships love. You know, love should motivate you to just accept what everybody is doing in every circumstance. I, I, there's uh, someone I read, I, I, uh, I can't think of who it is right now, but I appreciate their phrase. They said, you know, what we're living under right now is a sense of toxic, to sorry, toxic compassion. It feels like compassion. It feels good. But it's toxic and it's tearing us apart. So again, verse 3, unloving, unforgiving. 
slanderers, without self-control. Do we see a culture celebrating self-control these days? Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is exactly the culture we see today. But don't skip verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Having a form of godliness. Don't skip that. Because if we just say, yes, this is a decadent, terrible culture, just full of sin and vice. You know, in some places it's very obvious where you're stepping over the streets. Uh, sorry, stepping over bodies in the street in some of these open drug markets where people are starting to overdose on the sidewalk. Uh, some of these things are manifesting in a way that are certainly obvious. But at the same time, a lot of the preachers of the new culture, if you will, it feels kind of like godliness. It's talking about sacrificing for the sake of love, about really putting things aside just to embrace others. It feels like righteousness and godliness. You know, don't, don't you care about the future generations? Don't you care about this? Don't you care about that? And it's so easy to fall for those things because they feel like it. But as it says, they don't actually acknowledge the power of actual godliness. They're decrying that. It's like, you know, we want to liberate women, for instance. We want women to have as much freedom as possible. They should be able to do this. And if you want a woman to stay in a marriage and actually raise her children at home, how dare you do that? Don't you care about her? Don't you love your wife? That I saw some fellow online on Twitter where I see a lot of exciting things and some young guy saying, he said, you know, I'm working hard because when I do marry a wife, I want her to be able to to work in our home uh, to be with our children. And man, he was just being taken to pieces. You know, I can't believe you would do that to your wife, like making her a slave. How dare you not love your wife? And he says, well, look, hey, you know, if, if she feels that way, I'm not going to marry her, right? I'm going to marry someone who agrees with me. I mean, what's, what's, what's up, people? What's wrong with you? Uh, he was actually pretty easy. He, he stood his ground pretty well. Uh, the world is preaching something, but denying the power of actual godly living. And so we have to keep in mind, if we think this culture is not making an impact on us, we are fools. And this can be at any age. This is not just for the young here. Uh, even those who are older. If we think this culture is not making an impact on us, we are fools. And we deserve what's coming to us. But all the more when we're younger. I Let me just... I feel like almost every five years or so in my life, I feel like I discover anew the ways my environment had an impact on me that I did not recognize. It's humbling, a little terrifying because I'm 52. What am I going to learn at 57? You know, what's it going to be? I don't know if I want to know. Times when I feel like, yes, I, you know, I am not a creature of my culture. I'm a creature of Christ. Christ, not culture. And then God happens to say, guess what? Here's another thing. Enjoy, you know, and it's like, wow, I had no idea that that culture did have its impact. You go back then, I thought I was a culture warrior, you know, and I was actually right about some things, but so wrong about others. Okay, 
Let me move to the old first. And so all I want to say first again to the old like it was to the youth, you can decide for yourself if you're in that category. Some of you who think you aren't, you totally are. Don't, don't pretend, right? Don't fall for that. Hopefully what I've said so far, you should want to be in the older category. You know, it used to be the case that young people wanted to be older and then young people, I mean, older people wanted to be younger. But if you talk to them carefully, it's not that they want to be younger because they don't want to have to suffer all the things they did that you young people are currently suffering. Frankly, they just want joints that don't hurt. That's usually what they're saying when they wish they were younger. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had a young, youthful body that I could use to act on the things I know now. Because when I had that body, I didn't know these things. I didn't even know I needed to know these things. So it shouldn't be something to push away being old, right? Embrace it. Embrace it. You know, just in my head thinking, I am old. I am old. You know, it's okay. It's good. It's not a bad thing, right? You'd be respected for that. But it brings obligations. And in fact, everything that has been said by Scripture to the young brings obligations to the old. For instance, let's go back to Job. Job 32 this time. God does expect the young to listen to and defer to and to give weight to the things that are passed on to them and are said by the old. But the old have obligations as well. Here in Job 32, after Job's friends have had their say, we discover there was another person in the room whom we have not heard from at this point, up to this point, because he was younger and he was deferential. Starting in verse 1. We read here in Job 32, so these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 2, then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Job spent all this time trying to justify who he was and why he was doing the things. And he should have turned things back and justified all of God's own choices. So verse three, he says also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. They're busy condemning him. And even they don't understand why Job is going through what he's going through. Verse four. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. That's not the story you see on Disney Plus, right? Uh, I saw a clip just the other day of a, a 12-year-old girl who claims to be non-binary uh, with, you know, different colored hair and dressed, you know, interestingly, a 12-year-old girl lecturing a team of medical professionals and a medical board for the state of Florida uh, because they were going to pass a regulation to say that it should be, uh, it would not be allowed for minors uh, to have surgery and go through these procedures to imitate the bodies of the opposite sex. And this 12-year-old girl was lecturing them. And the adults in the audience stood up and applauded. And it was, it was I would say, it was a well-delivered, well-prepared speech. It was also amazingly stupid and should have been ignored by every single human in the room. If for any reason, because she's a 12-year-old girl and these are adults, and you need to know your place. We live in a culture that has no place. It's a bad thing to even say, need to know your place. And that is a shame because it is a desperate need. Elihu 
knew his place. Notice it didn't mean the older people were wrong. I mean, sorry, it didn't mean they were right. That was my point. It didn't mean they were right. Every single older man who spoke to Job was wrong. They got it wrong. But he still yielded to them. God cares about showing respect and deference to your elders. And Elihu did it. Didn't mean he wasn't angry and irritated. And he's about to explain why. Uh, So it says in verse 6. No, sorry, verse 7. No, sorry, verse 6. It says, So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. And he's not wrong. But it didn't happen. And so he says in verse 8, But there is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. And the young man's the only one that gets it right. And after that, God actually speaks to Job directly. We mentioned Proverbs earlier. You might remember as you're turning to Proverbs 16. You'll remember we read Proverbs where it says, you know, that... Uh, that the glory of the young is their strength and the glory of the of the old man is his gray, silvery hair. Well, there's a caveat to that. And it mentions it in Proverbs 16 and verse 31. Proverbs 16 and verse 31. We're told here the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. If the old want their words to be worth listening to, they must ground what they say in the mind of God, in his mind, his desires, and his way of life. They must ground what they want to say in righteousness, not their personal takes, not their individual preferences, but it must be grounded in the mind of God. Because the world is decaying on a whole. Things are getting worse. Society in important ways is getting worse. But not always in the ways that might we might highlight. Uh, it's easy to think it's just getting better. Like you look, oh, you know, we, we talk about how there's certain places in the world that have devastating uh, malnourishment. But if you look on the whole, the world is more nourished than it ever has been, it seems. If you look at actual studies. Uh, there's a lot of wars going on clearly in Europe at the same time. There's a lot of countries who aren't fighting that normally would be at each other's throats. Uh, the fact is all of us are here. We didn't have to show our papers to someone to get here, at least not yet. Right. Uh, we're able to come in peace. Uh, gas is expensive, not as expensive in other places. There's a lot of things right about the world, but in all the things that matter to God, the world continues to deteriorate. And so sometimes those of us who are older are tempted to hearken the minds of the young back to the past and to say, yeah, you know, the 40s and the 50s, you know, if if only things now were like then. But as the old, we have to be careful about that because it can be misleading. In fact, the Bible advises against it. If you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7.
Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10. In his God-inspired wisdom, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 10, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. No, the English Standard Version translates that. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, it's easy for us to look back on the old days and to say, boy, I just wish we could go back to that. And yet God isn't thinking that. God wants to go forward to the kingdom. No generation has been satisfying to God short of the kingdom of God, a generation yet to come. Now, why do we say things like that? I can tell you why I say things like that, because there's elements of the past that I that I love and I recognize were good. Uh, for instance, the show Leave it to Beaver. Uh, some of you all know watch it. Uh, I used to watch it. And it was a great show, mainly because one of the main characters was named Wally. That instantly makes it a fantastic show and worth watching and learning from. Uh, okay, that's not it. Uh, by the way, trivia. You know how June Cleaver always wore pearls? You know why? She had a scar, uh, the actress. And that was meant to hide the uh, the scar so it wasn't distraction from the lights. That's your trivia for the day. Anyway, you know, in Leave it to Beaver, you had an intact family, right? They're rearing their children. Uh, the wife, who always looks amazing, you're right? She's serving in the family. The dad is, is, is leading. And they're wise. They're not perfect. The parents make mistakes. The children aren't perfect, but they love their parents. And it's, it's a beautiful picture. And for some, that really was a life like that. And there's a longing for that. And so it's easy sometimes to say, oh, we need to go back to those times. You see that kind of stuff in the world, but we need to be careful when we say it to the young or even to some of the old. Go back to those same times and talk to some of the older black brethren in the church who remember that when they were traveling to the feast across the country, they didn't get to stay in all the hotels along the way because they weren't allowed because of the color of their skin and they had to pull off to the side of the road and find some campground and pitch a tent. If we carelessly praise the past as older people as if there was nothing wrong with those times, we make the same mistake as those individuals who look at the past and cast them as if they were nothing but terrible and horrible for humanity. We don't want to fall in either ditch. What God does is look to the future. Yes, there were things in the past that God loved, that he wished we still did. There's also things that he detested, that he's glad we've moved past, even though it's all going to come back in worse ways. It's one thing to talk about the past, but when we're talking to younger people, let's make sure we specify what it is. It's not just say that maybe we like something in the 40s, but we like say something about the family in the 40s. If we're older, we have an obligation, especially when the world is doing nothing but highlighting the negative of those eras. There is no purely good generation to have walked the earth. Uh, for instance, let's, you know, talk about millennials here for a second. Uh, Mr. Jonathan McNair wrote an article in 2017. You'll find it in the March-April issue of the 2017 uh, year of magazines, the Tomorrow's World magazine, titled, Are Millennials Really So Bad?, 
It was a very short article. He just wrote, yes, and it's all blank after that. We thought it'd make a real impression. No, he doesn't say that. You know, he looks at it in a, with a balance. He talks about, not really, look at it. Yes, there's mistakes, but there's also this. Consider past generations. People talk about the greatest generation, for instance. Those who helped save the world from Nazi Germany and Hitler. And they're called the greatest generation. And absolutely, they did, in many ways, were a tool to save the world and for allow things to continue to progress. They're also a generation, many of them, that came home, failed to rear their kids right, and contribute to the ongoing destruction of civilization. Take a look at the generations that came afterwards. Where did the hippie culture come from? Where did all this libertine attitude come from? There is no perfect generation, but there is a perfect God who has been reflected in one way and denied in others in every generation. And as those of us who are older, we have an obligation to communicate that well. Let me just summarize God's attitude by turning here to Philippians as we're close to wrapping up. Philippians 3. Oops. Philippians 3 and verse 13. What does the Apostle Paul say? Philippians 3 and verse 13, we'll start there. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was looking forward. He was not looking backward. Uh, talking with Jonathan McNair once about, about these topics, I like the way he, he, he put it. Because to me, when I see Paul, I see what we should all be doing. Mr. McNair worded the other, like always looking backward, like trying to identify with a better time, as a gospel of nostalgia. And we don't preach the gospel of nostalgia. We preach the gospel of pressing forward to the kingdom of God. So in wrapping up, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. And as we turn there, I want to uh, highlight something I learned about the cultural revolution in China that I didn't know. It was very spe- I'd heard about these things, but I hadn't actually put this way, which is, just shows my lack of education in that regard because it was a big deal. In the cultural revolution in the late 60s in communist China, there was a press to rid society of what they called the four olds. It was old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. Because they wanted to build the brand new shining communist civilization that old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits would be in the way of. But just like something isn't good just because it's new, it's not bad just because it's old. Sometimes those ancient landmarks are there for a very good reason. And there's an interesting parable that Jesus Christ gives in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 47. 
He says in Matthew 13, verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it'll be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So I'm just kind of wrapping up to give you one of the the uh, parables that he gives. But in this, he's talking about uh, a broader picture. He's been painting a picture of the kingdom. And then he asks them, because he wants to know the point of all the parables he's been telling and wants to make sure that they get it. And in Matthew 13, verse 51, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And verse 52, then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. You know, when the kingdom comes, there are going to be brand new things. There are going to be new things that this civilization and this world has never even tried seriously before. There's going to be new ways of life. There's going to be new laws that the world has never given a shot. They've never even tried. If anything, it's been the opposite of what they think they should do. But there are going to be also some old things that you go back to days long past and you would see those things present. You would see some intact families. You would see respect of older people. God doesn't want us dismissing what older people have to say. Because very often they're saying those things not just because they're old.